2: Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Steve Grasso, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Tonight on Fast, we are tracking the after-hours action shares of Lyft and Caesars. Both stocks on the move right now in earnings. Their conference calls are underway. We'll break down any of the big headlines. Plus, shares of Robinhood topping the tape. The stock soaring 24% today to close above its IPO price for the first time, We'll dig into what sent these shares soaring. And later... Pete is taking the mound to pitch his next best idea why he thinks this home goods stock is a total home run. We start off with two monster moves in retail. Checkout shares of Ralph Lauren and Under Armour both soaring after blowing past earnings estimates for the latest quarter. The company is both also raising revenue guidance for the year. The bullish outlook comes as America seems to be on a shopping spree. A new report from the New York Fed showing consumers are taking on debt at the fastest pace in more than a decade. Household debt surging by $313 billion in Q2. All this as we count down to earnings reports from the big retailers, Walmart, Target, and more all coming up in the next few weeks. So as retail ramps up, is now the time to bet on the great American consumer? Tim.
3: You know, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a better time to bet on the banks. And I think the, the, the retail uh, consumer following through after a pandemic with a lot of money in the bank for the first time. So even though some of these ho- household income numbers have never been higher, and I believe those numbers are right. The last three months, you saw household debt increase the most in 14 years. We're, at, we're almost uh, 15 trillion in debt. Seventy five percent of that is mortgage debt. Um, and, and so part of this is, does the consumer have more ammunition? And is, are they finally getting... Look, the Fed wanted this, right? Mm-hmm. They wanted banks to lend. They wanted the consumer to be out there. And, and, and they are doing it. So I think right now it's very positive. I think, you know, you heard from Under Armour. You heard from Ralph Lauren. Under Armour's story is one. Uh, first of all, I think this has been a turnaround story, a broken company, major management changes, two or three years into a turnaround, uh, seeing the tailwind of also higher margins. Uh, they talked about on the closing bell how some of their sourcing is better than some Some of their competitors, they're in a good spot, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a lot of great news priced into into Under Armour. I think there's a lot of great news priced into Ralph Lauren. I think a lot of these discretionary and and some of these apparel brands are are places where um, we priced in the consumer coming back. I think now that we're back to normalized earnings and we're looking at the two-year stack, that seems to be one of the common themes we've been talking about during earnings. It's to me, I think there's a lot of great news priced in here. I love banks here, and we can talk about that in a second. I just, you know, to me, today is not a story necessarily to go out and buy some of these, these retail names. It's a story to actually go out and buy the recovery.
2: That's to your number, by the way. I mean, that's comparison to pre COVID levels because that's a real, that's the baseline, right? Not during the pandemic. In terms of Ralph Lauren, this is a continuation of the luxury story that we've been seeing play out. So, so this could be a case of some consumers are doing really well, others may not be.
4: Yeah, you know, and that, that debt. Um, stat that you just threw out. I think it was really interesting. Liz on Saunders um, of Schwab had a tweet this morning about personal savings rate back to those February 2020 levels. And I think when you consider that with the rolling off of a lot of fiscal um, stimulus and then these eviction moratoriums, a lot of that, there's a chart right there. You see we're back at those levels. So you're starting to see you know, some of those um, high-end brands that have been doing better over the course of the recovery over the last six to nine months or so. Um, What I think is really interesting with the Delta variant here and some of the, the The restrictions that might come on and some of the opportunities to spend some of that money abating a little bit. Um, I think you maybe want to go back to like a Walmart. we were talking about it on Friday. Costco and Target closed near all-time highs. Walmart is is unchanged. Yeah, no, it's unchanged on the year, but the chart looks really good, actually. And we mentioned this. Um, Our friend Danny Moses highlighted it to me last week. It really looks ready for a bit of a breakout. And when you look at Target and Costco on just the runaway breakouts that they are on, Walmart reporting on the 17th, it could play a little catch-up.
2: So back to the bunker stocks. Maybe this a little bit. is basically what you're saying? I mean, Pete Najarian, I want to bring you in. You're, you tend to be a little bit more optimistic <laughs> sure. in terms of your outlook. Do you think it's yep. back to bunker, or do you think it's bet on the consumer getting out there?
5: I think it's okay to bet on the consumer. I mean, clearly, when, when any of us have traveled, if you guys are traveling as much as I am, Those planes are all full. You go into grocery stores, you go into any store, not just grocery stores, but you go into stores and it's bustling again. So that's what we're seeing here. And I think that the consumer feels stronger and that's why those numbers look very similar. I think Dan was mentioning February 2020. When you look at what was going on then, and then obviously what we had to go through and where we're back to now, it seems like the comfort level is there. And when you look at the volatility index, we cannot sustain over 20, Mel. We, get, we popped over 20 today. We were there for minutes. And then before we know it, we closed back down in the 18s. And, and it's just amazing to me how quickly we actually just flipped and And that's kind of what the markets are showing us right now. I think the consumer is strong. When we've heard so far through the earnings season thus far, we've heard some really, really stunning numbers. The Under Armour numbers were absolutely extraordinary when you look at The percentage gains that they were getting there, absolutely unbelievable. And I think when we do hear from those like Target and Walmart and and obviously some of those in that big box sort of world, I think those numbers are going to continue to be strong. The one thing I would caution, Dan, I think you mentioned Walmart over Target. I look at Target, it still trades multiple-wise, really, really inexpensive, despite the fact that the stock has absolutely sprinted to the upside and it's pushing right up against all-time highs right now. I think this is a stock that's bound to go to 300
1: Yeah. Grasso? Yeah, so we touched on it uh, last week with luxury brands. I think the luxury brands are okay. Capri looks like it's still breaking out. I told you I thought that it was uh, a double or a triple uh, even from these levels right now. Ralph Lauren, oddly enough, is back to that pre-pandemic level. Sold off from 145 so I agree with Tim. I don't, I don't know if you should really rush in and buy uh, these, uh, these levels right here, but if Ralph Lauren holds 125, it's going up another 20 bucks. Wait a couple of days, see if that happens. Having said that, when I look at Royal Caribbean, I switch gears, Tim liked the banks. I like these names that have pre-pandemic level bookings. RCL down 47% from pre-pandemic. Norwegian Cruise Line down 60% from pre-pandemic. Delta down 38%. All of them, what do they have in common? They are busting out in bookings way above where it was pre-pandemic. So for me, look for those bargain basement prices. There's been money thrown at the retail, uh, at, at the retail space. People who live through this 100-year pandemic basically want to get out there and spend money. I think we're still okay in the market and in retail.
2: I mean, there are plenty of ways to spend money, and it doesn't have to just be on a sweater or a pair of shoes.
3: <laughs> Although, I mean, you know, Dan loves a good sweater. And you <laughs> love a good vest. Yeah. I'm I mean, sure you're re- no,
2: restocking like, your vest collection as you have speak. To. You have to. In order to get out there.
3: <laughs> we talk about inflation. We spent a lot of time talking about inflation in the last six months. Um no one benefits from inflation more than places like Walmart. Uh, believe it or not, it, you know, it's actually inflation is good for them. So in terms of ticket sizes, in terms of their ability to pass it on to the consumer. And this is what you're hearing from all of these retailers, though. They have the ability to pass it on to the consumer. The consumer right now is flush with cash, and they're kind of looking the other way. And I think they will do this for some time. But again, back to the banks, what you heard out of banks in this, in this earnings season was that their, their, their credit metrics are improving. And I realize when you hear a number like household loan, uh, you know, Hassle debt, excuse me, is at, you know, highs we haven't seen and certainly growing faster than it hasn't since the last time we were on the verge of a financial you know, crisis. Effectively, 2007 is when people are linking some of these numbers back to. You do have a case where certainly banks are in a very different place. The credit profile banks are still holding back credit reserves from early in the pandemic that I think that they can drop on top of you the next couple quarters and give that back, especially with some of the, you know, the things that they've learned from the regulators.
4: You know, Listen, we're talking about banks. We're talking about credit. I mean, we got to talk about interest rates right here. Like, Look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield at 1.17. Yeah. It made a high of 1.77, right, earlier this year, I think back in March or so. So I guess my point is when I see these uh, debt levels going up like this, and we know sovereign debt levels are up massively, we know that a lot of municipalities have these massive holes. What if rates were to go up precipitously in a short period of time? And we literally saw Not from curious. last right. year, early in the year, from 1%. to 1.8 percent. And people were saying it was going to two and a half percent or something like that. I think that's why you need to be concerned about debt levels, about leverage and the velocity that rates could move if things were to start to change, especially if you guys were really worried about inflation, if that thing were to kind of come back into the, I guess, the front view mirror or something like that. So to me, I guess you got to really think about this stuff because it's all happening at a time again when we're starting to see a lot of fiscal roll off.
2: But are we worried about inflation right now? I mean, the bond market does not see to be worried at, uh, about inflation when you take a look at the break-even rates for yeah. 5, well, 6, Well, listen, ten. I'll
4: tell you this. Mel, if you look at the crude chart, the lumber chart, the copper chart, they're yeah. all breaking down of the one-year um, right. you know, uptrends that they've been in. So again, it doesn't seem like too many investors are particularly worried about it, but we've seen rate moves that have gone counter to what the, uh, you know, what the consensus has thought, and that's actually been a really tough trade to be on the other side of it.
2: Yeah. Pete, how, how would you position, I mean, is inflation, I don't know, a glint in your eye when it comes to thinking about the economy.
5: <laughs> well, I think it's certainly something that we all are keeping a very close eye on. I mean, I think, I think it's very important. And labor, obviously, is one of the biggest. I mean, that, that consistently is something we've heard about throughout earnings consistently has been that, that commentary about you know, trying to find labor and trying to pay. And that, that area is the area that's been hanging on pretty well. So, yes, we've had a bit of a pullback in some of those others that, that Dan was mentioning. But I think the reality is, Mel... The inflation that's most concerning to me has to do with wage inflation. And that is something that I think many different companies throughout all different sectors is having to deal with. And that's that's going to be something that I think we have to deal with going forward for at least the next year or more. And that's something that we obviously have to keep track of. Going back to banks for just one minute, I would say this. I think the banks, you have to decide which banks, because there is so much differentiation these days in these banks and where they are, and when you look at the rates and all the rest of it, I think it's very important to understand, what are the multiples? What is the price to book? That's something we've been using for a very long time. Some of them are more than two to one. Others are much less. So I think there's a lot of different ways to look at this, including the, 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 the specific financials that have exposure, for instance, to the credit card space, like a Capital One. I think there's all kinds of different financials, and I think if, if when we just say bank. I, I just sometimes wonder, does, does the common folks at home understand what that really means? So I, I think we just have to clarify what names we're talking about.
2: That's a good point there. Uh, Steve Grosso, if you are a believer in the consumer in terms of the consumer spending, you got to believe in the banks, don't you?
1: I, I do, and I, Dan brought up a good point. You can't talk about banks without talking about interest rates, and the problem is if if the 10-year doesn't tick higher then you're going to have a problem with the financials. And if the 10-year doesn't tick higher, you're going to have a problem with the value trade. But I do believe there are pockets of the value trade that are going to benefit with a reopening. And you know the names I'm long, OLN, TSE, GE, and WRK. I think that you're safe in those value names ultimately, but the value trade does hinge on interest, interest rates moving higher. Tech will benefit, if interest rates stay where we are right now or even tick lower.
4: Yeah, I just want to add one more point. You know, we're, we're really through two-thirds of earnings season right now. There are three consumer names that I think you really want to keep an eye on because the the results were disappointing and the guidance were disappointing, and they're big names. There's Amazon, obviously. We talked about it last week. PayPal is another, and Spotify is another. And I think the fact that these are three widely held names that we talk about all the time that disappointed on their for, forward guidance, they're very consumer-centric, I think they're really important to see how they end up trading over the next couple of weeks. Um, and really, um, if, there are, like, if there was some kind of canary in the coal, mind for some similar sorts of names going forward. And Pinterest is another one I've thrown.
3: But are, are they a tell on the consumer or are they a tell on, on those Weathers companies? I mean I, I, kinda, I mean, I I, I hear I mean, you on is, Amazon. Uh, although, again, I When's think... When's the last I, time we've heard big names guide down going forward? I, I mean, or, that, that, or, that's really the... When was the last time voice you voice heard Amazon name? guide down? I yeah, hear that. Yeah. Um, I think some of this is really difficult, comps. Um, I yeah. think the, the, other, the other part of this whole consumer story and the household debt story, etc., is we talked about mortgages which are basically 70% of household debt. Um, student loans are basically... basically... Basically, as a percentage of household debt of 550% in the last 15 years. Unsustainable. We know that. Credit cards are only up... 18% off of a 2003 level, which is, I'm pulling this off of the Fed site. So in other words, credit card debt as a percentage of household debt is actually shrinking, and it's shrinking dramatically. And what does this tell you about the credit card companies? Because, again, we just got done with numbers from Visa. Uh, They had a lot of folks then rush in to upgrade based upon some of the quality uh, of at least their margins. And I I think the the tailwind for e-commerce and cashless transactions, I think it bodes very well for credit card companies. But again, they seem to be losing their piece
4: of the pie in the household. Well, they're losing their piece of the pie though, because look at that deal Square just did. They just paid $29 billion for a company that's not credit card, right? It's helping consumers buy things. So I think there's a lot of other ways that people are buying things without credit cards.
2: All right. Coming up, China's crackdown continues, and this time Tencent is in the crosshairs. We'll break down what is in store for China tech stocks. But first, we're all over some after hours action. Lyft and Caesars, those stocks on the move after reporting results. We'll bring you the details and Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got earnings alerts for you on two big after-hours movers. Well, Lyft has settled down quite a bit. Lyft and Caesars, um, both higher right now. We've got full team coverage. Let's start with Deidre Bosa with the latest on Lyft. What a ride in the after-hours, (laughs) Deidre.
6: It has been quite the ride, and shares really took that leg down. They even briefly turned negative after CFO Brian Roberts on the earnings call not long ago said that Lyft will continue to incentivize riders with lower prices, and thus expects revenue per ride to continue to decline on a sequential basis. Now, Q3 revenue also coming in light versus the street's expectations. Lyft giving a large range for contribution margin as well, between 585 and 79%. Now, as as Melissa alluded to, shares were up as much as 8% before those comments because at long last, Lyft hit that measure of profitability. Adjusted EBITDA That both it and larger rival Uber have been trying to deliver to investors for quarters now. Lyft reaching that milestone a quarter ahead of schedule, perhaps raising the stakes for Uber when it reports tomorrow. On the demand side, the company says that it continues to outpace driver supply and that demand continued to grow in July despite heightened COVID cases. And with that in mind, co-founder and president John Zimmer says they continue, though, to invest in getting drivers back onto the platform. They welcome 50% more drivers than in Q1, but it's still not enough. And of course, it continues to cost the company money and could keep that profitability metric flat in the current quarter Q3. So a little bit overshadowed there. One analyst also points out that Uber may have to respond with price cuts and more driver incentives. We will find out tomorrow when that large arrival reports. In the meantime, though, do not miss Lyft's John Zimmer on Squawk Box tomorrow. Back to you, Melissa.
2: Deidre, Lyft had been, though, paring back on incentives, right, during the pandemic and shortly afterwards. And so are they reinstating? Is it your sense that they're increasing them or continuing whatever level they have currently?
6: So they paired back on a lot of things in 2020 amid the pandemic, like marketing costs and those incentives. But when demand has come, sort of really roaring back this year as the economy reopens, they have had to spend more on incentives to get drivers back onto the platform. And now it's locked in this competition once again with Uber when the market was starting to rationalize. So I think that's the biggest question. And now they're introducing the idea of incentives for riders too. So it's that both ends, right, on the driver side and the rider side that they're putting more money in. However, the idea that Lyft got to that adjusted EBITDA profitability through cutting things like marketing and in other areas over the last year is an achievement. It's just being overshadowed by the demand that is coming back. Right.
2: Deirdre, thank you. Deirdre Bosa on Lyft. Um, So it's a little bit of a give and take here on Lyft. You got that profitability measure hit earlier than expected, well, but here Adjusted we
4: are. Adjusted EBITDA. I mean, come it's on. kind people. of BS. Come on. Adjusted well, I you know. I just want to be clear. They pinpointed that target. Okay.
2: Wall Street accepted it.
4: Kind of accepted And they it. hit it early. I, yeah. I would just say this, is that what? why did this stock get creamed right after its IPO? Because people were not happy about all the discounting of Rye, or investors were right. not happy. So to your point, they're kind of getting it both ways here. They're right in the middle. Um, if they get back in a price war with Uber, it's not going to be good for either of them. We talked about it last week on the show. It seemed like the pandemic really broke... The this model. Right now, I don't see any incentives coming, and the wait times, I'm, I'm telling you, there's going to be a trade-off, okay, for incentives. It's going to be longer wait times, and that was not the promise of these ride-share sort of things. So right now, it seems like a really murky thing. We talked about Uber, that level. It just broke those May lows. Um, if they can't put up some big numbers that change people's mind about this model, right now, uh, on the ride hail, um, these stocks feel like they're... So it's bo- almost like it's not apples and oranges when you compare the companies, and if you look at the
3: performance of the stocks relative to each other, Lyft has outperformed Uber by 85% since that November quarter, since that October, end of October lift earnings result. But back to the service, and existential dynamics here. First of all, prices have to decline. Okay, you can't, people are not going to pay these prices, and, and in urban centers I can tell you, people right. are finding other ways to get around. So, um, you know, the, the, the dynamic between better driver supply, uh, lower you know, revenue per, per ride are, are things that I think overall are very good for this company in, in, in terms of the health. I think if I looked at these trades, though, and again, I think Uber is the call over Lyft here, because again, there's, there's just been such a, a I, the, the sentiment around Uber, uh, the, the negative revision You've had, and I think you look at the underperformance here. It's a very interesting trade on the other side, and I think Uber gets there.
2: Yeah, um, Pete, how do you feel about getting hit on both sides in terms of incentivizing riders and incentivizing drivers?
5: Well, and we were just talking about labor, right? And we were talking about inflation, and now they've, these guys are addressing exactly that—the fact that they have to have these incentives for these drivers. So, I think it just shows you, Mel, just how powerful that side of things really is. Now, that being said. The number of rides, the numbers that they were putting up, all of that's very, very impressive. We all, I, I think we'd all agree with that. But I think to Tim's point, Uber has not really pushed all that well. As a matter of fact, it's not, the performance has not really been there. I think that t- tomorrow we will see the kind of reaction that we started to see from Lyft post earnings and 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 that big lift to the upside i think uber's got the ability to maybe potentially give us some numbers that will make us a little bit more impressed and i think it's because of the fact that they are involved in all different types of rides not just the the driving of folks around but obviously the delivery services and all the rest of it so i think right now because of the fact that uber has lagged significantly from Lyft, i think that's the one that actually can have the most upside from here
2: All right, we'll continue to monitor this conference call. Lift shares are bouncing a little bit, up 1.3%. Let's get to Caesar. The stock is up 2% in the after hours. The call is underway. Contessa Brewer has been listening in. Hey, Contessa. Just
0: pulled out my earphone right here. The headline on this call is profitability. President and COO Anthony Carano on the call says, look, this second quarter, Caesars broke an all-time EBITDA record in Las Vegas. EBITDA. That's the key earnings metric in the gaming industry. That's what these insiders pay attention to. In the regionals, same story. Their profit margins here, jaw-dropping. It was 51% profit margin in Las Vegas, unheard of, 40% in the regionals. And in Las Vegas, remember, that was achieved without significant group business, with mask mandates in place, social distancing, and occupancy limits of 50% max for that was two of the three months of the quarter. On the call, CEO Tom Reed calls demand exceedingly strong. He says, "Look, given the COVID Delta variant, sure there could be some bumps in the road, but he certainly sounds optimistic that all this demand that we're seeing, the 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 um, occupancy that we're seeing in Las Vegas, will survive what's in store." And and then they're addressing group business as well. This is the all important factor in Las Vegas, really important for midweek business. Reed says conventions booked for the second half of the year are up 18 percent compared to 2019. They have a big new facility there. They're going to use it to the max. One more note here. I just heard this on the call. Free cash flow of $10 per share. I mean, look, record-breaking quarter. There's a lot of surprises to the upside in this report and this call, Melissa.
2: Contessa, keep us posted. Thank you. Contessa Brewer. Steve Grasso, nice move here on the back of this.
1: Yeah, and you would have to play MGM if for the same reasons. MGM is weighted Towards Las Vegas, they do in a normalized world, $2.2 billion in revenues there. So you want to stay away from things that are gauged against Macau. So you want to stay away from LVS or Win, Or unless you're playing the contrarian and say China is going to come back eventually, then you could go that way. But I would be a buyer of MGM on the back of Caesar. That seems like a no-brainer. And If you look at the charts, these are identical charts, and they both stopped on a dime on the 200-day.
2: The convention business does seem to be coming back. I'm getting emails about conventions in various locations love for the back of the year. No. I mean, you love conventions, don't you? <laughs> just as much as anybody else I do, Tim. <laughs> well,
3: I, I think something else just quickly on Caesars. How about the, the online sports betting trends and iGaming? Yes. I mean, this is really what I think has been driving this multiple. So I, I, don't, I almost don't even care about Vegas. I, I care about these trends, and this is where I think the premium has been put in a couple of these names. Caesars clearly over MGM and I think some of the competitors. That, I think that's
2: the driver here. Let's get back to Contessa. Do you have anything? on? We're talking about iGaming okay
0: iGaming, gaming but yeah right so they closed this deal with william hill a hundred days ago they have just launched the caesar's sportsbook app that was just yesterday i believe or the day before listen to this tom reed said on the call they're getting ready to spend a billion dollars on marketing over the next two and a half years so a those people who thought caesar's billion was billion one billion dollars on marketing i you know it's interesting because in most of these markets FanDuel and DraftKings gain most of the market share. And Caesars is coming at this late to the game. They've got an ad that's going to play in the Olympics uh, on Thursday. And so and we'll talk to um, we'll talk to Tom Rega a little bit about this tomorrow. He's going to be on with me on Squawk on the Street and talk a little bit about how do you elbow out some room when you have uh, so many other established players in the space?
2: So the billion dollars contest. I mean, there's only so many ads you can buy. Imagine a lot of this is promotions, sure bets. You know what they're doing? First bets.
0: They're gonna. They have more than 65 million people in the Caesars reward system members to to maximize the marketing. What they've done is they've incentivized all of their employees. They've got you know 60,000 employees or so. I'm pulling that number off the top of my head. They're gonna take all the people, not just the casino hosts. But the housekeepers, the bartenders, anybody who's got face-to-face contact with customers, they're incentivizing them to get them to sign up and download the app.
2: Wow. Talk about deploying an army of <laughs> promoters. That's really interesting. Contessa, thank you. We look forward to that interview sure. tomorrow. Contessa Brewer on Caesars. Pete Nigerian for sports betting, you go with the Caesars or you go with the uh, you know, DraftKings?
5: I'm still with DraftKings, but I think this is a great move by Caesars, and obviously they're committed to this move, and I think it's very smart. They should be in this spot. But I think DraftKings was kind of like the early entry into that world, and I think they still have that kind of power going forward. Unless they stumble, I think Caesars is still going to be looking at them from behind. But... It's absolutely a spot, Tim pointed it out. I mean, this is a spot where they, they absolutely have incredible growth. But I still think Vegas is very important for them. And obviously, everything all of us are seeing says that Vegas is back. And that's going to be something great for them going forward, as long as the Delta variant stays at least a little bit more calm like it has thus far.
2: All right. Well, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next.
5: The China crackdown continues, and J.P. Morgan's Joyce Chang warns the streamers could be next. Plus, our own Pete Najarian is winding up and getting ready to throw some heat. His fast pitch is coming your way. We got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. We're continuing to follow the latest developments out of China as the crackdown on big business continues. Beijing putting a new target in its sights today, gaming stock. CNBC's Yunus Yun is on the ground, in China with the very latest.
6: A journal linked to official news agency Xinhua attacked online gaming, calling it opium of the mind and singling out Tencent for its popular titles. The government has targeted gaming in the past, and just this year, President Xi called video game addiction a mental health concern for kids. In the same speech, he described after-school tutoring as a social problem. But once a report raised fears Beijing would crack down on the industry, it was deleted and later showed up with a bland, watered-down title. It's unclear when and if the government will rein in the sector, but Tencent doesn't appear to be taking any chances. Today, the company unveiled new curbs for kids' access to its flagship game.
2: Thank you very much, Eunice Yun in Beijing. Interesting how that happens. The article comes out. China's most valuable company takes a nosedive. Magically, the article disappears and comes back severely edited. Tim, what do you think of this?
3: Well, you know, there's been some feeling that over the last week or so that the the Chinese regulators are are trying to understand just how how heavy-handed they've been and whether they should change some of of the tone and the style. And and, There was that meeting last week with the CSRC and the banks and the market rallied. Some think it was just, I I think it was just them coming in there and supporting their market. And and I think, ultimately, I don't think any of this changes. Yeah, maybe that story disappeared. Um, The boot on the neck is not coming off anytime soon. And I've made my point over the last month is that um, each event becomes part of a mosaic that that is awful um one-offs and certainly some of these things i think were early round overreactions especially uh, in terms of anti-monopoly and things on baba that is not my view and it hasn't been my view for some time and in fact i don't think you chase dan which i think is one of the great tech companies and incubators in the world especially not just social but because of their gaming influence because of the they their their investments in in u.s and global tech have been very very leading edge This is a sad time.
2: See, I thought the way I interpreted it, and obviously I'm just a layperson observing this whole thing, no skin in the game or anything like that, not an expert, um, is that China, you know, the article came out and then they realized the impact it had. And they walked it back, basically. That's their version of walking things back, just like when China's securities regulator, because they don't want their markets to tank.
3: Do, really? Do you, I mean, like,
2: Ultimately, I, they don't want their markets to I, tank. I think
3: they've spent a lot of time, so I agree with that. They spent a lot of time trying to make sure that China's markets are money center markets, that MSCI comes there, that they actually get their weightings. But um, what's more important right now in terms of social and regulatory control? I, I don't think there's a question.
4: Yeah, I would just say this. The Shanghai Composite looks like a big, long consolidation over the last year. We're seeing some massive damage due to some of these big tech companies. And there are some of the biggest companies there. If you look at the FXI, the iShares, uh, large cap China ETF, that's down considerably. Um, But, you know, their market is actually fairly well intact if you're looking at some of those different indices. So maybe it is just a matter of, okay, getting some of these companies in line, supporting some of those um, markets so the, the broad market doesn't get slammed.
2: Well, as Beijing goes after gaming companies, our next guest warns, there's another major group that may soon come under fire. Joyce Chang as chair of global research at J.P. Morgan. Joyce, great to have you with us. Great to be with you. What is that next group? What is that next industry?
7: I think there has been a real government focus on teenager protection, so it could be live streaming. But the one thing all of these sectors have in in common is that they are new economy sectors which have seen very aggressive growth and high profitability. And these aren't rushed decisions. Um, You've really seen a pickup in these regulatory changes since the 100th anniversary speech for the Communist Party on July 1st. And a lot of this follows what's been laid out in the five-year plan, which talks about common prosperity. And what does that mean? That means lowering education costs, um, housing prices, reducing the cost of raising children, reducing wealth inequality. So I don't think these are rushed decisions. I don't think they're anti-capitalist or meant to cut off foreign investment. I think it means a strengthening of the Chinese Communist Party's position and a clear message that they're going to focus on achieving common prosperity.
2: Do you think that regulators are worried about the impact this is having on its own stock market? Maybe they don't care about foreign investors in the stock market. They certainly, though, care about foreign investment. And they do care, I would imagine, about domestic investors as well.
7: No, I, I do think that you know Ch- China wants capital. They want it on their terms via the exchanges in Shanghai, in Shenzhen, and in Hong Kong. So I definitely think there's an awareness about this. But I th- think that the Communist Party takes a very long view on this. And they lay out plans for five years. And in a lot of these plans, you know, the, um, intentions were very clear common prosperity, upgrading digitalization, um, also self-sufficiency and technology on a five to fifteen year time frame. So I think what they've targeted are the areas where there hasn't been much regulation, but they've had very aggressive growth, they've had very high profitability. I don't think they're going to do anything that really you know damages the overall objectives they have um for infrastructure. And I think we've seen episodes like this before. You know, so um you on know, um, over the long term. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the outlook doesn't really change, but I think you could see some harsher than expected regulation forthcoming for the next quarter or two in certain sectors in the Internet sector and other sectors like live streaming, fintech, you know, even some of the medical industry that you know, ends up being, being impacted.
3: Hey, Joyce, it's Tim. Thanks for you've been doing this for a long time. So, you know, you, you've also been watching China. Um, plan this course for making their markets globally investable. And I think JP Morgan, you've been very measured about comments in the past saying, hey, this is really very important to them. Take a, take a deep breath and, and they're moving forward and they're not going to get too far out of line here. But the issues you're talking about, both socially and, and in terms of the, the new economy and the digital age, are significantly bigger, I think, than their markets to them. Do you have a call on this? Because we, we just care about how we're going to be navigating these markets right now. And I, I agree that the social issues are complex. Um, Aren't we collateral damage for the foreseeable future?
7: I I think the capital flows into China were much higher than um, expected, you know, given that you had the pandemic. Nobody would have thought at the beginning of 2020 that you would have $575 billion of foreign portfolio investments go into China during the year of the pandemic. So I think what you've seen are some very aggressive growth, very high profitability, you know, that that occurred very quickly. Now I think the government is saying that, look, we want to see more transparency, more Regulation. We also want to see that monopolies are addressed. You know, a lot of these same issues are coming up in the US as well. So I would not be surprised if you see more rules on fintech, on antitrust penalties that could be announced. But I don't think they're going to change the overall framework on. running capital into China. And you know, still, we have things like China's inclusion in the index occurring and flows that still are close to record flows, even with the events that we've seen. So it's a longer-term view, but I wouldn't rule out the short-term volatility continuing and more regulations still to come.
2: Last quick question, Joyce, and that is, what is your top, what is your favorite emerging market to invest in from an equity perspective? And is what is happening in China, does that influence your pick for this top emerging market?
7: Well, you know, we had actually gone overweight in some of the Latin American countries, and it was about the value story, you know, not the growth story, that you still will see, you know, a rebound from the lows. So Brazil and Mexico, we had gone overweight. We also still like the energy sector, so Russia, you know, as well. So I don't think that China affects this. I think China is more of a local issue. And even over the longer term, I don't think it changes the overall China story for foreign investors. I mean, China is going to approach capitalism in a different way. Um, And this has been very targeted to new economy sectors, which have seen very aggressive growth in the last two years and very high profitability. I think it's very domestically focused what their objectives are.
2: Joyce, thank you so much. Good to see you. Joyce Chang. Um, For foreign investors, Joyce said, uh, Pete, for you, does this matter? Does it make some of these names like a Baidu a no touch for you?
5: You know, uh quite honestly, Mel, I, I've gotten more and more concerned over the last year or two or more um, about some of these Chinese names, and, and because of that I have shifted just completely over to just options, and the only reason I've done that is I feel much more secure, I know exactly what my risk-reward is, and I feel far more comfortable because of that, because when I'm looking at these as stocks, boy, I, I tell you what, we just don't know, and, and she mentioned a couple of different times there, she talked about the communism and, and uh, the communist approach and so forth, and when I heard that, it, it just it, it dawns on me once again that they can make decisions that maybe I don't really uh, want to follow along with and doesn't make sense to me. And because of that, I'd rather be in the options where at least I have that flexibility and I know exactly what my risk-reward is going into a trade. I, I think
3: I'm listening to Joyce, and again, I've been listening to Joyce for a long time in emerging markets, and she, she and her team do a great job. She, she's basically, what I heard was, don't worry about it. Um, Longer term, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Money flows are, you know, China's not going to be that big a deal. I'm kinda I mean, I'm a little surprised to hear about it. Not that again, it's a a rational view, but but China's weighting in the index is forty three percent. I mean you can't tell me by the way, if you removed uh, Tencent and Baba and and how to some of the composition of the index uh, more like it was 10 years ago to domestic stories like Chinese banks and insurance companies that say all day long. But, but I mean, these are companies that I do think are still in the crosshairs. And that's a big part of the waiting. But I, look, again, uh, it's a great view. And I do think Tencent and Bob are great companies. Um, I, I think right now there are headwinds. All
2: right. Coming up, we are digging into a big mover from today's session. Clear, secure, heading south. We'll tell you what's behind that move in just a few. But first, our own Pete Nigerian is taking the mound, winding up to give you his fast pitch. He says this stock is a total home-run investment. We'll bring you the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing at record highs today. And Pete says there is one name that was a big pandemic winner that's set for even more gains ahead. Pete's stepping up to give us his fast pitch. So... What is it, Pete?
5: It's William Sonoma, Mel, and I'm really excited about this one because Laura Alber has been an unbelievable uh, steward of this company. She's been there for nearly three decades. And she was the president at Pottery Barn, where she completely re- transformed Pottery Barn. But then, when she became the CEO in 2010, she transformed the company into an e-tailer that's absolutely become a behemoth. Fifty percent of the sales within four years were on the online side. Now, well over 70 percent of sales are coming on the online side. I think that transformational process and vision for the future was very, very key in why this company is doing as well as they are. As a matter of fact, when you take a look at what they're doing and you look look at where their P.E. is, Mel, versus most of their competitors, they're trading at 14 times earnings. They're extremely inexpensive. They've got very little debt. They've got eight and a half times, uh, eight and a half dollars per share in cash. And there is about a 10 percent short interest there. So if this stock starts to get moving to the upside there will be some folks that are going to get a little bit more anxious about what's going on with the stock that all being said it's still about growth and they have plenty of growth there as well in the eleven years since she's been there the earnings have gone up eight hundred and fifty percent as a matter of fact her stock is up about eight hundred and fifty percent so Almost in every single metric that I was looking at today, I was just thinking to myself, this is an absolutely almost flawless company in terms of all of what they can do to control the narrative. And obviously, e-commerce was huge throughout the pandemic, but it was even big before and it will be big afterwards. They have shrunk their share count in the last five years by about 15 percent the last 10 years by about 28%, so just about every metric, as I mentioned, is there, plus the fact we had some monstrous call buying in there, the November 170 calls, they were also selling puts to the downside, I just, I think there's a lot of different reasons right now where this is a stock that not too long from now, I think starts pushing back up towards that $200 level.
2: Is this headquartered in Minneapolis or anywhere near there, Pete?
5: <laughs> <laughs> it's a West Coast yeah. company. No, it's, no, it's exactly. in Son- you know Sonoma. So <laughs> I know that's unusual.
2: <laughs> and yeah, very unusual for you. Um, we have a question from Steve. Steve, go ahead.
5: Okay.
1: Hey, Pete. So when you look at it, you named a bunch of different things that I totally agree with, and you slapped out a lot of metrics that no one can deny. Uh, but two things. When I look at the chart, the, the stock is down about 20 percent from recent highs and it, and it has uh, developed a declining trend line. And, and uh, another question, when you look at this, do you, are you bullish on restoration hardware for this, uh, multiple uh, similar reasons? Because that chart looks a lot better to me than this one.
5: I do like Restoration Hardware, to your point, Steve. I think it's another great company, and we, we, we've seen that stock do very, very well. They've done a lot of the right things along the way as well. I think part of the reason that I like this one is not, not necessarily the negative of the chart, but the fact that it just hasn't had that performance. It's dropped back down, and I think that actually creates the opportunity that I see for the upside. And, and, and by the way, we all know there's a lot of charts at the bottom of the ocean, so we'll see if this one is one that breaks down <laughs> and we see this stock actually break to the upside.
2: I like that line. <laughs> no more questions. We're going to vote now. Are you buying Pete's pitch on Williams-Sonoma? Tim Seymour, what do you say?
3: I'm a buyer. Uh, you know, whether, whether it's crock pots, Dutch ovens, scented candles, you know, whatever, Pete is doing it. This this valuation on this company, That's by the way, it's Pete keeping warm next to an oven. Um, and I, I think a this D is on it, they, it, it with a T next to it. Um, you, you've had an <laughs> enormous investment in their digital business. This, they are the digital, as Pete said, uh, home furnishing retailer, and they continue to grow their margin. Eight hundred fifty bips
2: love it. for Dutch, I believe. Uh, Grasso. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say sell. I love Brother Pete. But when I look at the technicals, the 50 day okay. has pierced the 100 day to the downside and it's trading below th- below the 50 and the 100 day so I'm going to stay clear of this one until it stabilizes.
4: Dan? Yeah, so Grasso was a little harsh there with the sell. I'm saying not a buyer. That was a great power pitch. He really surrounded the trade. And that's what we look to do when we do the power pitch. Dan, correct? you don't have to sugarcoat it. No, just I'm just you, But, but, I mean, but just here's the thing. Down. I'm not a buyer of the stock, but I actually like what he's doing. I like the idea. I bet you he's long calls or call spreads or short puts against the calls or something like that. That could be a trade. That little downtrend that has been in, you probably get a move on a beaten raise back to those prior highs. So I'm following market rebels over there.
2: All right. The the traders have spoken, <laughs> but now it's your turn. Are you buying Pete's Fast Pitch on William Sonoma? You can vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We'll have the results later on in the show. Coming up, options traders are betting Rogue Who's about to reverse its recent pullback in a big way? We'll bring you the action when Fast Money comes right back.
5: Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Roku is set to report earnings tomorrow. Let's get to Mike Co with the setup. Mike.
1: Yeah, so Roku is implying a move of about $35 a share after they report that's a little over 8% of the current stock price in line with the 8% or so that it's moved over the last eight quarters. And calls out pace puts today. The trade that I saw that caught my eye was the September 420-440 call spread. Somebody paid $8 a contract for 800 of those, risking about $640,000 in premium on a bet that the stock could rally about 6%. By September expiration, in which case, they would see a payoff of about 1.5 to 1?
2: Thank you, Mike. And be sure to catch Roku founder Anthony Wood tomorrow on the closing bell. And be sure to tune in tomorrow for Options Action by 30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trades and the result of the Twitter poll. Twitter poll on the fast pitch. Pete, you lost. 52% said no. No to Williams-Sonoma. Final trade time. Pete,
5: what do you say? I'm going to say Pfizer, Mel. I think it's going higher. Steve?
1: YOU, clear, secure. J.P. Morgan gave you a gift. Chopped off 10%. Bye. Tim? EWZ, I think, is a winner in the absence
4: of China. Dan Nathan? Yeah, pharma ripping, but I like XBI here.
2: Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.